Hello, everyone. I'm Kennedy. And I'm Vasilis. We run Changemaker Z, a student-run initiative that aims to empower, educate, and connect Gen Zers interested in entrepreneurship. We interview teenagers with impactful projects and create resources to help you change the world. If they can do it, so can you. On this podcast, we discuss the logistics of creating different types of projects with Gen Zers who have already done it. We will leave our social media and website information in the description. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Dancers to Rise podcast. With us in the studio is the founder of The Color of Us, Sonia Kolatur. The Color of Us is a multiracial and multicultural advocacy platform and ground post pantry a non-profit that brings awareness to the limited financial resources of senior citizens by providing them with monthly pet food supplies. In addition to that, Sonia is a former TEDx youth speaker and she has been featured on ABC15 and CBC National News. Today's episode is all about racial advocacy and the color of us non-profit. Sonia, welcome to the show. So nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you too. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, we are so excited to have you. Um, we, it wasn't mentioned in the bio, but like another thing that I saw when I was like researching you is this girl is like a youth Olympic archer. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of, I wanted to ask about that because it's, it's not, it's not a typical sport. I feel like when you're asked, is it, is it considered a sport, right? Yes, it is considered a sport. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm just interested in how you got into it. I'm like, okay, Katniss Everdeen? <laughs> that is the goal. Um, I actually got into it in an after-school program that my family put me in. In Arizona, archery is a really big sport. So my school in, um, I believe, eighth grade had an informational session. And I had to stay late that day anyway. So I decided I would go to it. And after that, I just found a love for the sport. So my parents decided that because I loved it so much, they would enroll me in a club outside of school, and I've been involved in it ever since. Since then, I've become pretty competitive, and I'm currently a nationally ranked archer in Barabow Cadet Archery, and I hope to pursue that in college in the future. Okay. Amazing. And that's, okay, that's interesting. It's really big. I'm, the viewers don't know, I'm from Minnesota. We are all on, we're all into hockey and whatnot, so really, I don't think... There probably is some archery around, but it's not really big here. So um, speaking of Arizona, can you give us like just a little bit of background on your upbringing in Arizona? Like, were you in the suburbs? Like, were you like one of the only POC in your class, like neighborhood type of thing? Or how was that? And guys, um, for anyone who don't know, if you want to explain about your identity too, like I know you're half Indian. Definitely. So I grew up in the suburbs of Arizona and During that time, there was very few people growing up who were who identified as POC, particularly being biracial. My father is from India and my mom is Irish American. So growing up, I never saw people that looked like me or had my same heritage or cultural background. In school, I was one of the few people of color or first generation children. And growing up, it didn't necessarily bother me too much, but it enabled me to conform to one side of my identity. So for my entire childhood, I identified as monoracial Indian. And when people would ask, I would say, oh, I'm Indian. 
And then they would come to my house and they would meet my mom and they would tell me, no, you're not Indian. And that always really confused me growing up. And it's just now that recently, within my last few years of high school, that I've really grown into my multiracial and biracial identity and acknowledged both parts of my heritage. That's a big part of my work with The Color of Us because I think a lot of people who grow up in my similar situation where they may be the only POC in their class or they may be the only biracial person in their friend group that they know isn't fully comfortable embracing both elements of their heritage. And I really want to bring awareness to that. Well, thank you for sharing that. But when you said you you kind of identified more like just basically Indian on your father's side, did that cause any type of rift like with your mother at all? Because... That's a great question. My mom was always really supportive of how I identified and connecting with my Indian culture. I think growing up in America, being away from cultural roots of India, she really tried to emphasize, you know, cultural traditions, holidays, connecting with that side of my family. So when I identified as Indian, I don't think she saw that as me embracing only my multi and my monoracial identity and acknowledging my multi disacknowledging my multiracial one. I think she saw that as oh she's finding pride in her cultural upbringing, and it was only until later that I realized that it wasn't just that I was finding pride in my Indian heritage; it's that I was only identifying myself that way and missing out on all of the Irish American ancestry that my mother brought. So she was, she's always been incredibly supportive. And even now with my journey with the color of us and identifying more as multiracial, she's always been really supportive of that for me. Do you feel comfortable in your culture today? Like you, you said that like you were the only person in your class with this uh, unique identity. But in general, how do you feel about, you know, the rest of, of you know, the country, maybe the world? Is still something that you have to work through sometimes, personally? Mm, that's a really good question. It actually reminds me of one of the first podcasts that I did, and it was with um, Dr. Rudy Cabora Jr. of ASU. It was titled This and That, and we talked about how identifying as multiracial or biracial, mixed race, multicultural, etc., You can identify with those elements of your heritage, but that doesn't mean you're any more of this and any less of that. You can connect with both elements equally. And I think now that's something I'm still trying to struggle with, um, embracing since for a while, I didn't know anything about my mother's heritage, my Irish ancestry. I just learned that I'm a quarter Swedish a few, I think about a year ago. And I'm really trying to embrace and connect with that element of my culture as well. Personally, it's still a struggle um, trying to navigate all those different facets to my identity. But in the context of larger society, I'm really content with how I identify and the changes that I'm bringing to helping other people broaden their horizon of what it means to be multiracial. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, right now, let's move on to the color of our subject. What are the different ways people can become, uh, you know, invo- become involved into, you know, your nonprofit, The Color of Us? So The Color of Us is really focused on increasing conversation around multiracialism and multiculturalism. Um, I do this through blogs, podcasts, 
art, and social media promotions. For The Color of Us, contributors would be multiracial and multicultural youth who are interested, and particularly youth being Gen Z or under um, 18, because it's really a platform to help youth connect with the elements of their heritage. Within the mixed race community, there's a lot of really great organizations for adults or parenting, but there's really few resources for multiracial youth, and that's something that I want the color of us to focus on. So youth who are interested, who do identify as multiracial or multicultural, can apply to join the platform and contribute in the forms of blogs, op-eds, podcasts, or art submissions. So another thing that you do through the color of us is a lot of like advocacy type of work. And, you know, a huge one is um, you work to get June 7th through June 14th recognized as Multiracial Heritage Week in Arizona, which makes Arizona only the 20th state to recognize it in the U.S. So I can only imagine how challenging that was. How long did this take you to do? Do you have any stories about that process? Um, Actually, I think the biggest story that comes from that process is how confusing and unaccessible government legislation can be in some scenarios. The process itself wasn't too hard as Arizona, uh, the Arizona governor's office has a process for proclamations that you can go through and you can go to the website and submit it. However, that form is really hard to find and locate. And when I first began this journey of thinking that there should be some type of acknowledgement of the multiracial population in Arizona, I had no idea that that was even an option. It was only through a connection with the governor's office and working in regards um, to, in, like in conjunction, in conjunction with members of the office that I was able to learn that this process does actually exist. When I went to submit the proclamation, however, for proclamations, you need to submit it up to six weeks in advance. And by the time I had found the form and that there was actually a process for this, I think I was at five and a half weeks exactly. So I was really stressed that, oh no, this isn't going to happen because I missed the deadline since I didn't know that this exists. So I really worked to try to form connections within the governor's office, reach out to people in the proclamation sector and try to get this to be pushed through. I was able to form a connection with someone in the governor's office of youth, faith and family who actually went down to the proclamation office and asked the people what the status was on the proclamation and helped it go through faster. So I'm really grateful for all the support that I got from family and friends and members of the governor's office of youth, faith and family and helping me with that process. This is really wonderful. Um, someone that's not from United States, I would like like to know, um, like, what do you think that's going on with the other states? Like, I don't know what's, you know, the percentage of the multiculturalism in other states of the United States, but like the fact that it's so difficult from the government side and the local, you know, governments to proceed with all these, you know, uh, procedures that needs to be done. What do you think personally, like, do you think that in other states it's like as difficult or not difficult to move on with that process? And what do you think that it could be a solution to that problem if exist? Thank you so much. That's a really great question. Speaking from my experience personally as someone being multiracial in Arizona, I think the process itself was more challenging, not only because there's 
such a limited number of people that identify as multiracial in this state, but also because of the historical outlook to anything in terms of race relations in Arizona. Traditionally, our state hasn't been known as the most progressive in those issues. And any type of conversation around culture, race relations often met with resistance from one or more political factions. In states with a larger number of multiracial individuals, there's been great strides taken forward. I know in California, there's been forms passed to include multiracial options within school systems and um, other uh, stuff in that field. But overall, as a country, the multiracial population has been growing dramatically. In 2020, the census showed that the population increased by almost over 200%. So as a country, we really need to be taking into account this demographic more. And that includes first acknowledgement. A lot of, like uh, as a personal example, when I go to submit forms for school, doctor's offices, etc., and I have to come to the category of race and ethnicity, there's either a check only one box or they won't have mixed race or multiracial. So I click other. And not only is that a problem because it feels like I can't identify with anything and I don't fully belong in this new American society. It's also a problem because when you think of in terms of doctor's offices, certain races are more prone to specific types of conditions or diseases. And when I select the box other, that doesn't give a very good indication. So as a society, we really need to be thinking about this demographic and the issues that encompass it. And the first step is really to acknowledge the increase in the multiracial population and that we're a really prevalent part of American society. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I don't really think about, I never really thought about it that way. Um, Like I know, I'm not sure what other states have like identified that week but it's like you think like we have like hispanic heritage month like different cultural weeks and months or whatever but it's like the mixed population i feel like is not it was never really acknowledged it's not something that i thought was a problem so i wanted to move on to another subject your website features some beautiful artwork created by you i would love to know the inspiration behind your you know, ancestral tears piece, for instance. Yeah, I the ancestral tears. So obviously, you can't, you guys can't see it, but it's just like this image of a man or a being just like laying down. It's really beautiful. Yeah. So actually, there's a really unique story with that piece. When I first founded the Color of Us. I had a really hard time connecting with other members in the mixed race community just because it's a really small network and it's really difficult to find people. So the first association that I came across that even acknowledged the mixed race experience was the Critical Mixed Race Studies Association. And through that organization, there's an annual conference held every year um, with global experts that come in and talk about different issues affecting the mixed race community or different pieces of policy that are being put into play, research in the field, etc. And one of the things that they do, they do submissions for research papers for undergraduates and art submissions from anyone across the world. I had never seen an art competition that offered submissions specifically for mixed race identity. 
In my free time, I like to paint a lot, and a lot of it involves like cultural background and heritage, but I never really found a place to submit that to that would understand the story that I was trying to tell. So when I saw this opportunity, I thought it would be a really great way to put my artwork out there. And even if I didn't win, it would be great to know that it was going to a cause where people would look at this and understand what it was about. For that year, the theme of the artwork was ancestral futurism. And what I interpreted ancestral futurism to mean was how do we connect with our ancestry, but move forward into the future, acknowledging that as a core part of our heritage. And the two pieces that I submitted, the first one, I included different splotches of color that were each supposed to represent different facets of identity and multiculturalism. So in thinking of my own life, I know that for me, like I celebrate Diwali with my Indian side of my family and my mom will make like soda bread occasionally. And sometimes those two holidays overlap. What I really wanted to show with that piece is there's so many different elements to culture and identity and being mixed race, but that all converges to form this beautiful human person with such unique experiences. With the other piece entitled Ancestral Tears, I wanted to talk about specifically how in American society, at least with my experience, I was often told to choose one element of my identity. And in that way, I ignored my Irish ancestry and my Swedish ancestry because phenotypically, I don't look that Irish or Swedish. I look more Indian. And I think that's a problem that a lot of mixed race people can relate to in terms of having to conform to one element of their identity because other people don't see it. And I really wanted to show with that piece how when we do that, we're not only hurting ourselves because we're depriving ourselves from this unique facet of our experiences, we're also ignoring the ancestral traditions that have come down from that time. And I think in my piece where the figure is kneeling, I wanted to show that the internal pain and suffering that can often bring when we ignore parts that make us whole merely to conform to society's standards. Well, it's really beautiful and impactful. And it struck me in a way. So, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but a part of Color of Us, you can apply to submit artwork and be a part of it, correct? So if you're an artist, it doesn't, it doesn't matter which type of medium. No, you can do any type of media. Um, I know one of our fellows in the Color of Us, she's working on a mixed media art piece. And I know there's been a few ideas to do poetry and film in the past. So any type of media is welcome to be submitted. Yeah, so fellows, um, if you're if you're interested at all in becoming a fellow, check it out. Ages 12 to 18 is uh, what's available. But I also kind of wanted to talk about your other nonprofit. Well, your nonprofit, the Grandpa's uh, Pantry, which is so cute. Uh, the Thank name you. is so cute. I it's kind of I was wondering. It's kind of a niche, um, like problem, like um, uh, senior citizens uh, needing help with. Um, getting food for their pets. How did you come across that? Yeah, so actually with that, I started it when I was 10 years old. So I grew up visiting my great-grandmother who lived in an assisted living facility that allowed their, them to have companion pets. And while she didn't have a companion pet, I noticed that a lot of her friends had either dogs or cats, but she would tell us often about how 
Cindy next door couldn't afford the cat food or she was struggling to make the trip out because of disability or disease or financial limitations, lack of family support, and wasn't able to fully care for a companion pet. I've always been in a family that really supports community service. So that year for my birthday, I decided I wanted to ask all my friends to bring pet food and blankets and supplies instead of gifts or money or anything like that. So I could give that to the seniors who were struggling to take care of their pets. When I did that, I realized it's not just seniors in this specific facility. This is a universal problem. And I really wanted to do something to help. At the time, I had a mom who was very, very involved in the parent-student organization of my middle school. And I went to her and I said, I really want to do something and I want to make it legitimate. And I'd done all this research about how to make a nonprofit. And she had been working on the board to of the school to make the school a nonprofit. And I came to her and I said, I want to make this a 501c3 nonprofit. Where do I start? So she was really supportive guided me in the right direction. And now six years later, it's grown to um, help almost 70 plus seniors in facilities across the valley. The thing that I see that's really impactful with Grandpa's Pantry, because like you said, it's a very niche issue, is that because it's a niche issue, there's no other resources. There's pet food shelters, uh, there's like pet shelters, there's pet food pantries, but nothing specifically addresses the problem of senior citizens not having pet food. And that's such a big issue because senior citizens are in isolation in assisted living facilities. Some don't have family and friends that come and visit. And often with these conditions, they're very prone to loneliness, depression, and anxiety. But having a companion pet really helps that yet they're unable to afford to have the pet. So I think by having Grandpa's Pantry, especially now where I'm interested in going into law and public policy in my future, I'm really seeing how specific governmental policies can be used to help underserved communities like multiracial individuals or like senior citizens with companion pets and how that can fill a void where there isn't currently solutions to address these problems. I agree that companion pets are really important and recently I heard a news saying that in UK people that like bought, uh, took or uh, take care of their you know, companion pet during COVID but now with the energy changes, uh, prices, they have to give them up so which is really really, like this makes me feel bad, sad for the whole situation if we consider that this whole thing was reproduced due to the Ukraine's war and that it can impact so many people and then can impact not only you know physical our lives which happening with energy prices but also with people's you know psychology that they need you know your their companion pets and now this is my favorite personal question Do you have any advice for kids who might be struggling to find community and being comfortable in their identity? That's a really great question. Um, I think for my generation, Gen Z youth, my biggest advice would be if you don't see the community that you can join or are struggling to find yourself fitting in in some place, make that community. I know so many people who will struggle with something, see inequality in the world, or just notice a problem, 
and we'll feel awful about it, but not know what to do with it. Gen Z is an incredible generation and the youth in our community are so incredibly powerful with so many opportunities to make a difference. So my first advice would be if you see something and you want to make a change, that is possible and there are avenues to do that and you should go for it. My second piece of advice specifically with struggling in terms of identity would be to really surround yourself with people who are supportive of your Um, not just identity, but style of life that you want. Far too often, we situate ourselves in communities where people tell us, no, you can't do this, you can only be that. Like in my case, people saying that I'm not really Irish, I'm Indian, and I can't identify with that side of myself. Whatever your situation may be in terms of your identity, make sure that you're placing yourself in a community of supportive people who really care for you and want to help you in that process. That is amazing advice. Thank you so much. And just to go off what you said, there are avenues and there are ways to do it, especially Gen Z. We have all the opportunity in the world with the Internet as much as don't even get me started as much as the Internet's a blessing and a curse. um, It is more than ever we have the opportunity to make connections and meet with people so going off of that the internet is like you said there's good and bad but in terms of finding a community there are people out there that exist beyond just your little suburban world in my case in phoenix arizona Um, With The Color of Us, it's an online international platform and some of the best ideas and contributions have come from from international members of the community. So if you are interested in finding other avenues to explore your identity, really think beyond just where you're located and into the world around you. Well, another fantastic episode has come to an end. Sorry, that's it. Of course, we want to thank Sonia for joining us today and telling us about her organization and experience as a biracial woman. If you want to keep up with Sonia, all of her information will be in the description below. And until next time, don't forget, don't forget to change the world. Bye. guys for listening we hope you enjoyed the conversation we had such a great time make sure to leave us a review if you want more change makers content you can follow us on instagram at gen zers to rise and on facebook at change z Please.